This is week three of Jesus of the Prophets. We're going to be in the book of Micah today. And before we get to that, I want to tell you a story. This is a story of kings, so get ready. It begins in the book of 1 Samuel. Origins of the story are far in the past of 1 Samuel, but it all starts in 1 Samuel. It goes through the Old Testament and all the way into the New Testament, and it starts with a man named David. David comes from the most humble origins possible. He is a shepherd, and as we learned last week uh, when Pastor Phil was talking about Amos, who was also a shepherd, shepherds are not the, that's not the profession that you really want to be necessarily when you grow up. And not only was David a shepherd, David was the youngest of his brothers. So he was in line to inherit jack squat. Uh, he comes from really humble origins, and uh, through a crazy set of circumstances involving the current king, whose name is Saul, David actually ascends to the throne as the second true king in Israel, and he is a great king. David, uh, in fact, years later when the books of First and Second Kings were written in the Old Testament, David is the, he's like the gold standard of a good king. Every king in Judah is measured off of David. They'll say in his name, his name was, you know, something weird and unpronounceable, and uh, he reigned for this many years when he was this old. And he either did good in the eyes of the Lord, as his ancestor David did, or he did not. So David is the standard of a good king. And even though he did some stuff that kind of was bad, um, this is David of both David and Goliath and David and Bathsheba. So this guy was not perfect. But the Bible still calls him a man after God's own heart. And in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with David. He speaks to David through the prophet Nathan. And uh, this is 2 Samuel chapter 7. God says, I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people, Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who ever lived on the earth. Furthermore, I will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod like any father would do, but my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. But your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever." This is what theologians call the Davidic covenant. This is God making a promise to David that his line will sit the throne for eternity. Now, eventually David dies and his son Solomon ascends to the throne. And Solomon actually, he starts out great and it looks like he might be the guy that this whole covenant is talking about because he actually does build a temple for God's name and he actually is corrected. God tells him very specifically not to mess with foreign idols and false non-existent gods and Solomon just goes and does it anyway. So God does discipline him. So you're looking at this and you're like, oh, okay, this might actually be Solomon. But Solomon, he lets in a lot of, uh, a lot of idol worship and things like that and it starts to slowly kind of corrupt the kingdom a little bit. And by the time Solomon's son uh, Rehoboam comes to the stage and takes uh, the throne. We have a bit of a uh, a bit of a mess in Israel. God told Solomon, "You did exactly what I told you not to do concerning all these false gods and idols and everything. So essentially, you're going to lose the kingdom. But because I made a promise to David, your father, one of your line is still going to rule the throne." 
So God is making provision for this covenant that he made with David. So Solomon's son Rehoboam takes the, the throne and for his first royal act, he screws up royally. He takes some really bad counsel from some people he shouldn't have listened to and acts on it. And as a result, the kingdom of Israel splits in two. The north kingdom, which retains the name of Israel, and the kingdom in the south called Judah. From this point on, a king from David's line did not reign in Israel. A king from David's line did reign in Judah, but you can already see that God's covenant with David is in jeopardy here because his whole kingdom just split. And from this point forward, uh, things just get worse and worse. Kings of Israel and the kings of Judah largely are corrupt. They worship other gods and things like that. They disobey what God uh, had commanded them to do. And every so often, a good king will come along and he'll, you know, he'll stamp out the idols and he'll restore worship of God and everything. Uh, but then either his son or his grandson will take the throne and just, you know, just upend everything that they did. So they, the Israelites um, and the people in Judah are in this cycle of, of bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad king, that kind of thing. And then 200 years after the kingdom splits, this is uh, mid-8th century BC, we get to the prophet Micah. Micah was active a generation after Amos, who we heard from last week. Pastor Phil was talking about Amos and how Amos and God were concerned, very concerned, with the injustices that God's people were committing. Uh, If you remember, the wealthy upper class was essentially lording their power and their wealth over the lower class such that the poor had to put themselves in bondage to the rich just to get basic human necessities. And it absolutely sickened God. God said, I am never going to forget the wicked things that my people have done. And when God tells you he's not going to forget something, you better shape up. But the Israelites did not. A generation later, Micah comes on the scene, and they're still acting the same way, except it's now a degree worse. So in the book of Micah, God essentially brings a lawsuit against his people. There's a lot of uh, cool, interesting legal terminology, uh, terminology in Micah. God, with Micah as his lawyer, as it were, kind of representing the prosecution, then on the defense you have God's people, which are both kingdoms, Israel and Judah, they're on the defense. God even calls witnesses Um, in chapter 5, he says that, uh, or chapter 6, he says that his witnesses are the hills and mountains. It's like a cool bit of imagery, but essentially you guys have been sinning and messing up for so long that the earth itself has borne silent witness to your injustice. We don't really need any human to come up here on the stand with me. I'm God. I know what's going on. Oh, and by the way, so does the earth. So it's kind of a big deal. So what is God bringing against his people? What, you know, what are the examples of what they're doing it's largely a lot of the stuff that they were doing last week, so I don't want to you know, necessarily spend a lot of time recapping all of that. But I do, um, there is a point here, a verse that kind of sums everything up nicely. Um, and to step out of the story for a moment, I want to preface this and say that what you're about to see in this story is God's love and his justice in equal measure. We, uh, as Christians, as humans, we have an incomplete view of God. The view of God we have is what we find in the Bible, because that's exactly what God thought that we needed to know about him. That's why we have the Bible. But Paul describes our knowledge of God like seeing through a glass darkly. 
So like a, you know, like an opaque glass, you can kind of like see, or translucent, and you can see fuzzy shapes on the other side, but there's not a lot of definition, that kind of thing. So we have an incomplete understanding of God because God is infinite and we are not. We can't ever hope to completely, and this earth, in these bodies right here, we can't completely understand God. And because of that, sometimes we have a somewhat flawed view of God and we elevate certain attributes of God above certain other ones. Um, some of us elevate his love over his justice and we say, well, yeah, you might have screwed up, but God's going to let you off the hook for that. You know, or God will make a way to forgive you. And he does make a way to forgive you. But then some of us also say, you know, we elevate his justice over his love and we say, it doesn't, you know, what you've done, the injustice you've done, I mean, especially when you look back and you look at the Israelites and the stuff they did, and God said, I'm never going to forget what you've done. And in Micah, he says, I can't even look at you anymore. Some people look at the justice and they go, there's no way God can forgive that because he can't, because he has to punish injustice or he's not just, right? And that also is true. But God's love and his justice are all the time. God is love and he is justice, says the Bible. And he is both things at the same time in equal measure and in greater measure than any of us could ever even comprehend. And what you're about to see here is an example of that. So let's jump back in the story. Micah chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Micah speaks here to the people. As for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord. I am filled with justice and strength to boldly declare Israel's sin and rebellion. Listen to me, you leaders of Israel. You hate justice and you twist all that is right. You are building Jerusalem on a foundation of murder and corruption. You rulers make decisions based on bribes. You priests teach God laws, God's laws only for a price. You prophets won't even prophesy unless you're paid. Yet all of you claim to depend on the Lord. No harm can come to us, you say, for the Lord is here among us. But because of you, Mount Zion will be plowed like an open field. Jerusalem will be reduced to ruins, and a thicket will grow on the heights where the temple now stands. Judgment is coming. Later in Micah, God states that he is allowing two foreign nations, Assyria and Babylon, to sweep in to destroy both the kingdoms of Israel and Judah and to take his people captive. And this is the judgment for the injustices that they have been committing for generations and for centuries. But what does this mean for God's covenant with David, right? If a king is supposed to sit the throne eternally, we can't let the line of kings die out. But also, because of God's great love, he makes a way not only to keep his promise to David, but also he lays out a plan of redemption for his people. In Micah chapter 5, which is the, uh, the verse, a couple verses on the front page of your notes there, Micah 5, verses 2 through 5, God lays out his plan of redemption. Speaking to the city, or speaking, uh, I guess, figuratively here to the, the kingdom uh, or the city of Bethlehem. He says, You, O Bethlehem, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a king, a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. The people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the woman in labor gives birth. Then at last, his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land. And he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. 
Then his people will live there undisturbed, for he will be highly honored around the world, and he will be the source of peace. These prophecies came to pass years later. Assyria came and just mopped the floor with Israel. Babylon came and did the same with Judah. And God's people were exiled to foreign lands for years and for generations. And even though they eventually returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt the city and the walls and the temple, there wasn't a time in history when Jerusalem was not under foreign occupation. They, the people of, of Israel were literally abandoned to their enemies. And there were oppressive thumbs of different governments that stayed over the people until the first century A.D. But Micah 5 talks about this king who's coming. And ancient writings from what we call the intertestamental period, it's the 400 years between the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, you read uh, what the Jews were writing at that time, and they're still waiting for this king to come. He's going to come back, and he's going to rescue his people, because God said so in Micah's writing. His origins are in the distant past, but he's coming in the future, and when he comes, he's going to set the wrongs right, and he'll be the source of peace. Fast forward to the New Testament. A little baby is born in Bethlehem, which is the city of David. He grows up. He heals the sick. He feeds the hungry. He takes special care of all the people who were being downtrodden in the time of Amos and Micah, all the people who were victims of injustice. He takes special care of them. He gains some disciples. He gains a public following. And he gains enemies. And eventually he's put to death on the cross like a criminal. But three days later, He rises and is witnessed by many. There's a man named Matthew. He was a Jewish tax collector. So he's a member of God's people who is waiting for this king to come back. He's also a tax collector. He works for the Roman government. And uh, based on what we know of tax collectors, Matthew was pretty well off, financially speaking. But he sees something in this man who's healing the sick and feeding the hungry, and he follows him. And something so radical had changed Matthew's life in his time with this man that he gave up his his posh lifestyle. Eventually, he's a missionary and he's martyred because of this man. Matthew gives us the first book in the New Testament called the Gospel of Matthew. And in his Gospel... He looks back to the Old Testament and he looks back to Micah chapter 5 in the second chapter of his book. And he reads this old prophecy and says that this king, whose origins are in the distant past, who's coming in the future, that's this man that I've been following and his name is Jesus. That's this man, he's the king. He says, Jesus was born a descendant of the line of David in the city of Bethlehem, fulfilling all of the Old Testament prophecies that we read about this morning. In fact, in the first chapter of Matthew, he lays out an entire genealogy that takes a little bit to get through because some of the names are weird. He leans out this whole genealogy proving how Jesus is a descendant of David. God's covenant with David is fulfilled, and Jesus the King is here. 
He was God's father, or God was his father, and he was God's son, and he's the king that the people of Israel were waiting for. The big idea today is this. It's just three words. It's simple because the last big idea I gave you took me like two minutes to read. (laughs) Jesus is king. Three words. Jesus is king. There's a few parts to him being king that that we need to examine closely because we don't live in 8th century BC when Micah was written. We don't live in 1st century AD when Jesus was here. So uh, it pays for us to do a little work and dig in and find out if Matthew is in fact correct and this is the king who was prophesied and then what that means for us sitting here in Perry Hall High on December 11th, 2016. So let's look at point one in the notes. Jesus is the ancient king. Jesus is the ancient king. Micah 5.2, a ruler, a king of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from Bethlehem on God's behalf. The English Standard Version reads, this king, his coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And this is a big clue to the Israelites. You're going to know this king when he shows up. You're not going to be confused because his origins are from ancient days. So what does that mean? It's kind of a twofold sort of thing. The first piece has to do with God's promise to David with that Davidic covenant. Because in one sense, when you read the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, you realize Jesus is a descendant of David. And so his origin, so to speak, he's, he's part of this ancient line of kings, right? So in a sense, his origins that way are from ancient days, you know, from hundreds of years before. But there's another thing to it that we actually get from the New Testament writers. John 1 Verses 1 and 2 are in your notes there. And I'm going to read that to you and just follow along with me. Listen imaginatively and see if you can kind of catch this whole ancient origin thing. John says, In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. John calls Jesus the Word because he's God's Word to the world. So if you sub uh, Jesus' name in for the Word... In the beginning, Jesus already existed. Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus existed in the beginning with God. So Jesus' origins are quite literally ancient because he existed before creation, in the beginning, says John. There's another verse in your notes there. It's Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And that's what we have been reading these last couple weeks, right? He spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So his son, Jesus, God has appointed this man the heir of all things. In other words, king of the universe, crown prince, right? This is the heir. He's going to inherit his father's kingdom, which is the universe, but in another cool little bit that I'm not going to get into today, but it's really, really cool, through whom God also created the world. Jesus was actively involved in the creation process. Isn't that cool? The world was made through him. 
So according to the writer of Hebrews and according to the Apostle John, Jesus' origins are literally ancient. So Jesus fulfills this uh, origins in the distant past part of Micah 5's prophecy. Jesus is the ancient king. Point number two in your notes is this. Jesus is the future king. But is he really? I mean, he came, right? He fulfilled a a humanly impossible prophecy, but he still came back in first century A.D., right? In other words, he was a future king for the people when Micah was written, but for us, he's a king in the past, at least historically speaking. And if he's just a king in the past who just came for a specific people, what does that have to do with us And then finally, what it all boils down to, if Jesus just came once and just ruled once, then his relevance to us today is minimal. Because he would just be an interesting historical figure. However, if he is still coming and he is still reigning, that changes everything. We read uh, our Advent reading this morning from Luke chapter 1. You will conceive Mary and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Remember back in 2 Samuel, I will be his father and he will be my son. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. There's that Davidic covenant again. And he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. So if, we, if we, we look at what the writer of Hebrews and what John said about Jesus existing in the beginning and Jesus is still existing, it stands to reason that he will continue to exist hereafter. And if he was the king back then, it stands to reason that he will continue to be the king in the future. Make sense? Jesus' kingdom will never end. And here's a cool part for where we are in history We're in a very neat little pocket of a couple thousand years here in between when Jesus came the first time and when he's coming back. Because the book of Revelation, uh, if you sum it up, basically says Jesus comes back. He will return to earth again as the king. And when he comes, evil will be thrown down. He will eradicate sickness and disease and sorrow and weeping will be no more. Why? Because the once and future king, to borrow the, uh, the words on King Arthur's tombstone, the once and future king will have returned. The one who created the world and the one who died for it will have returned. Point three in your notes. We know Jesus is the, the once and future king. He's the ancient king. He's the future king. Jesus is also our king. And this is good news for all of us, because I am not uh, Jewish, so if he just came for one specific people group, I am left out. Thankfully, uh, God had that idea in mind, and he also had another idea in mind. And part of this prophecy in Micah that we read from Micah chapter 5, actually, no, I'm sorry, Micah chapter 4, which I'm about to read, uh, part of this speaks to the king's kingdom being greater than what was originally anticipated. See, the Jews were expecting a military king. They wanted somebody who would rise through the ranks, who would, you know, bring a, uh, rise an army, 
and would go and free the Jews from the oppressive thumb of the Roman government. And if I was in their shoes, I would probably want that too. But thankfully for those of us who aren't Jewish, God had another thing in mind too. Micah chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all, the most important place on earth. It will be raised above the other hills, and people from all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. There he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. People from many nations are included in this kingdom. Everyone is able to walk up to approach the mountain, the house of God. This is a multi-ethnic community that this king is going to establish. It's not just for one people group or for one economic group or for one social group. This is for people all over the world. Micah 5 verse 4 said that he will be highly honored around the world when he comes. So his kingdom is not narrow. It's for everybody. He's not just the king of the Jews from the first century AD. Because he's the once and future king who is still reigning, he can be our king as well. One major thing, though, uh, in closing here that I do need to address, Jesus sure didn't look like a king, right? I mean, when I think of a king, I at least think he would have more than 12 followers, uh, and hopefully one of those followers would not betray the king. So he really had like 11 good followers. Um, I would expect an army. I would expect some manner of, I don't know, old English words or something. I don't know. He, he, did, he, just, he didn't look like a king. He didn't rule any kind of kingdom. The best you could say is he had a tight band of followers, one who betrayed him, and a bunch of crowds who followed him because he was a supposed miracle worker, right? He didn't look like a king. Thank God. Thank God he didn't just look like a normal king. We see God's wisdom in sending Jesus the king rather than just installing another human king. Why? Look back to what we were, we were checking out the story earlier. Even David's own son, David, the gold standard of kings, his son couldn't quite cut it. He did a pretty decent job, but then he screwed up and then things got worse. And then it would get better for a little bit, and then it would get worse for a couple generations, and it would get better for a little bit, and it would get worse for a couple generations. If God just sent a normal human king, and he did save the Jewish people from Rome, and you know, he established a new kingdom and got all the land back and all that kind of stuff, he would have died, and his son would have taken over. And at some point, that cycle just would have continued. Why? Because God is not concerned with a lack of good leadership in the kingdom. That's not why God sent a new king. God sent a king to deal with the problem that was at the root of the evil and the lack of leadership that was in the kingdom. And that is the problem of sin. We all have it. We're born with, uh, with the propensity to do it. And even those of us today who would say, Jesus is my king, and we worship him, and, and we have our, you know, our eternal future is secure with him, we still mess up. We still sin. Because unfortunately right now, it's, it's a part of our nature. 
And if God had just sent forth us a normal human nature, propensity to send human king, the whole thing would have collapsed at some point. And then where would we be? But thankfully, God sent his son who lived the perfect life, the king of the universe. And like Pastor Phil said uh, during his prayer after worship, he stepped down, he surrendered his throne and was born as a child, little baby, who had to rely on others to survive, stepped down from his throne and became the humblest of creatures so that he could grow up and he could die on a cross. And Second Peter says that uh, the weight of the sin was on, uh, the sin of the world was on Jesus' shoulders. When he died, he put to death the sin of the world. And because he rose and is still alive and is king, he alone has the power to grant access to his kingdom. And that's why we have church. (laughs) That's why we're here. We're here to proclaim the news of Jesus Christ and that anyone who accepts what he's done on the cross and believes that he rose from the dead and that he is still king and that he's coming back, anyone can have life in his name. We can all be not just like more than who we are, but like we can be changed. We can be different. The things that we've been struggling with, the things that, our, that, that our, our bodies struggle with, with like sickness and disease and even the sin and some addictions that some of us have, like that stuff can be gone. That's why Jesus came. That's the hope of Christmas. That's why I'm up here. That's why Pastor Phil is up here. And that's why we have discipleship here because it's about all of us as Christians proclaiming the good news that Jesus is king and he's king of the world for everyone. That's why we're here. So Jesus is uh, he's the ancient king, he's the future king, and he's our king. As the uh, worship team comes back up, there are, there's some responses that uh, are suitable for us to respond with today. Uh, I want to ask you a question. It's a yes or no question. And then based on that, I have a, a response, a suggestion for you this morning. Here's the question. Is Jesus your king? Have you made that decision to put yourself under his leadership? It's not just about asking for forgiveness of your sins, but also... We want to live like him. We want to be more like him. We want to act like our king. And so we put ourselves under his leadership so we can obey his laws, which are good, and follow his will, which the Bible says is good and pleasing and perfect. So if you have made God your king this morning, think about this. Um, there was a, a tradition. It's been somewhat romanticized a bit, but it, it does have historical uh, credence to it. There's some value there that uh, in like medieval times and a little pre-medieval, you would have some kings, generally speaking, good kings or kings who didn't want the scrutiny of the people too much, uh, would uh, open up their doors every so often, like once a year or once a season, something like that, and allow, um, allow common folk, peasants and everything, to approach the throne and to request what they needed to bring their requests and and ask the king to act upon it. And they went to the king because the king has the power and the resources of the kingdom at his disposal. If you caught the king's ear, what you asked for would be done. 
And we've talked a lot this year at Echo about prayer and how we approach God. And we approach him as a father, right? We learned about that in April, that God is our father. He's not just some far-off cosmic deity that doesn't understand us. He's our father. We can approach him any day, at any time, and we can ask, uh, we can ask for what we need. But here's the cool thing. Our father also happens to be king. He's the king of the universe. And he has the power and resources at his disposal to give us for what we ask. So I'm not saying we should like ask selfishly this morning, but here's, here's what I want to say. I think many of us sometimes we struggle with prayer. At least I know this is true for me. It may not be true for you, but maybe true for some of us. That we pray prayers, we pray somewhat weak prayers because we want to hedge our bets. I've done that. I've done that this year where I'll pray something, but I won't go as far as I might, you know, asking God for something because if he doesn't show up, like, what does that mean for God? And what does that mean for my faith and all this kind of stuff? And kind of like hedge our bets a little bit. There's an old hymn. uh, I think it was written by the same man that wrote Amazing Grace. Um, It's about prayer. And the second stanza says, thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring for his grace and power are such that one can never ask too much. What's that big thing today? If you've made Jesus your king, what is that big thing that you've been praying for? Have you been praying for God to heal you? Have you been praying for God to heal your marriage or your family? What is that big prayer that, that in our thinking is, is too big, it's too big for God to take care of? What is that today? Our prayer team's gonna come down front when the worship team starts playing please, please, please come down front. Let us petition with you. Let us write our signatures on your request and present it before God, the king who has the capability, the power to do what he wants to do. Let's align our will with his will today and let's just bring our requests to him. Can we do that? And secondly, uh, for the is, is Jesus your king question, if you said no to that, um, but maybe you're thinking there's, there's some value to this. Maybe there's something real here. You know, all these old stories from the past and, and, and everything. We, we think about, uh, about Christmas time, you know, the feelings that we all feel and warm fuzzies and grace and forgiveness. And it's a good time to, you know, what Pastor Brian said, you know, it's just smile and everything. Um, you want to know why I think we sometimes get like this at Christmas? Because we're celebrating the hope of the world. And I think on some level, every one of us understands that there is a God. And we all understand that we're not perfect. And that in and of ourselves, we do need someone to come and save us. I think we all have that inside us. If that's you this morning, and you would say today is is the day, whether this is like the first time you've heard it, or the seventh, or the hundredth, but this is the day when you want to say, I want to make Jesus my king, then I want to lead you in a real short prayer uh, let's just bow your heads and, and close your eyes, and you can just kind of follow along silently with me. Just say, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you are the king. I believe you came to earth, that you lived a sinless life, that you died on the cross to pay the, the price for my sin, and that you rose and you're alive because you're king I want to put myself under your leadership would you lead me and guide me today
Amen.